Hi, Zan. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Andrea. How are you? I'm great. Well, as great as I can be, given that it's currently midterm season. Yeah, it's midterm season, and the seasons are changing, too. It's almost winter now. The weather's cooling down. The sun has disappeared. It's uh, it's peak sad hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I have my pumpkin spice ice latte with me, so... You know, that's really brightening up my day right now. Yeah, I can't relate. I'm more of a vanilla latte guy, and that's a pretty year-long thing. Yeah, that's a hot take right there, Zan. <laughs> and, you know, to make matters worse, uh, when we came in to record today's uh, intro, uh, a fly had occupied our equipment. I mean, not a fly, but a spider had spider. occupied uh, our equipment, so that caused uh, quite a commotion in the Jew politics office. And Zan has a huge fear of spiders. I'd so. say huge fear, but <laughs> it was a bit of a, bit of a problem. Um, so this week we had the pleasure of interviewing Karan Demergian, who is a award-winning journalist. But why don't you take it away and with a full introduction, Andrea? Yeah, she was such an awesome person to talk to. Like you said, she's a Pulitzer Prize award award-winning journalist. She has reported abroad in Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East, has done a lot of cool work, and now she is the Pentagon correspondent for the Washington Post talking to her we were able to get a lot of insight on americans america's perception abroad her stories on like reporting with classified information and what it's like to report on conflicts as well i found her insights on reporting on conflicts extremely important i learned a lot about how you know media perceptions and media reporting abroad reflects and actually even shapes public opinion uh, you know, within the United States, I think it's an incredibly important discussion about how journalism and the facts and what stories get reported actually changes the reality on the ground. So um, without further ado, we'll get into it. But, you know, just quick shout out to her upcoming book, Unchecked, the untold story behind Congress, Congress's botched impeachments of Donald Trump, which comes out this October 18th. So without further ado, let's get straight into it. Good. How are you guys? Good. And so we'll get right into it. So you are a Pulitzer Prize winner journalist. Team. Team Pulitzers. <laughs> I never won a Pulitzer alone. There's a big difference between doing it by yourself and having a big squad that that's you know that you're part of. You've been in the industry for many years now. Have done a lot of work abroad. What has first brought you to be a journalist and now a Pentagon correspondent? Oh, well, okay. So I came to journalism actually rather late. Um, I, I was a musician during my undergrad years primarily, and I worked at the college radio station, and that was kind of my first real foray over into the news side because it was literally just across the hall, and one day my senior year I decided to try to give that a shot. Um, and that turned into me saying, hmm, okay, this is kind of interesting. I, I had done things that were like journalism adjacent, like I'd worked for a travel guide during college, which was like, you know, sort of reporting-ish, but not really, right? I had tried to write a few articles for the student newspaper, had not done a very dedicated job at that. Um, but it was enough uh, experience and I was excited enough about it that I decided to take a summer journalism course and I applied for an internship at NPR, which brought me to DC. And sitting in an edit booth, um, with my job was to sit in an edit booth and basically pull together tape and create the layered sound that you hear in NPR pieces because um, 
oftentimes the correspondents, not always, sometimes they do it themselves, but they'll send in like, you know, the voice reading their parts of it, the tape of the interviews, the tape of the ambient sounds, and the producers have to bring it all together. And I just remember sitting in my little three foot by three foot padded box of an edit booth, really being jealous of what I was editing, the people, what they were doing, right? And just decided I want to be doing that out there. So it took another couple of years and several internships before I had my first like real job. And then it took several more years in journalism before I actually did the foreign correspondent thing. I was working in Chicago. I was working in D.C. I was doing domestic policy because part of, you know, building up a journalism career is taking the jobs you can get and proving you can do them and bidding that up into doing the next thing until you can make your career do what you want it to do. And and I bounced all over the place. I've been laid off. I've switched cities. I've switched news organizations. I've switched news media, like the radio to, to, to TV to, to print and things like that, and landed where I am um, at The Post, uh, having started with them in a far-off corner of the world based in uh, Russia and at the right time, basically, when everybody started, that, that part of the world started to get really intense and crazy again, and that ended up bringing me back here to what I'm doing now, which has been primarily doing national security, national security coverage, excuse me, um, for about the last decade. So you briefly touched on, you know, bouncing between different areas within the journalism industry. I'm curious, how kind of open to transition are you when you're in the industry? Is it easy to move from print to radio to TV? And also, is it easy to move from field to field? Or is it generally once you start, you're kind of deadlocked into print and to media? It's not, okay, so it's not easy. I, I made the moves a lot earlier on. This is the thing, like it's easier to make these sorts of moves earlier in your career and it's easier to make the moves after you've got a little bit of experience under your belt, right? Um, you know, I think a lot of people do internships and do temporary jobs in different sorts of places. You know, try print, try television production, try a stint at radio. You're, you're trying to figure out kind of where, where you fit, right? I have good friends now that have, you know, I, one of my closest friends and former colleagues at the Post is now an NPR correspondent covering um, the, the Capitol, right? And that was a transition that she had been an intern in radio, then done print for several years, then went back to radio. There's a lot of times when, look, I, for four years, I was kind of had a foot in both the print world and the television world, right? Because I was a Washington Post journalist as my full-time job, but I had a side gig as a CNN analyst, right? And so I was switching gears there. So, you know, it's it's all news, um, especially if you're talking, you know, general mainstream media objective news coverage, right? The, the, the fundamental things that you work with are all the same. You're trying to get information. You're trying to accurately report that information. You're trying to do so in a way that is compelling. And then the, the, the mechanics of how you do it are different, right? Uh, writing a sentence for print, very different than writing a sentence for radio, sure. very different than for TV. I have to worry about like finding one or two photos for my articles that I don't didn't take myself, you know, for a print article. I did take them myself when I was overseas, but that's a different story. Everything is kind of a little more fly by night when you're when you're off in different parts of the world. Um, and but but like that's very different than working with, you know, actively a you know, it's you and a producer and a cameraman all the time. And you're looking for visuals that have to like supplement the story. Otherwise you can't put it on TV. So it's, it's, you can learn the how and the, uh, the to, to like the, the structure of the how, um, on the job. Um, and obviously the people that are really good at it have, have has several years under their belt. Um, but from the reporting side, um, it's, it's the same basic tools of what you're trying to do. And you have to kind of learn, 
the right style to do them in based on where you go. Um, usually at some point people find that they are, you know, married to TV journalism or married to radio or married to news. I mean, I'm, I'm a print reporter primarily. I, I know that now, right? But um, the other part of your question was about, you know, are you stuck doing one one type of thing, right? And I would say that the answer to that is not if you don't want to be. Um, I think a lot of people find that, you know, they get into something and they get really deeply sourced in it and they like being an expert in it and they like being, you know, being able to think ahead of where the news is because that's something that's really important for reporters to be able to do, not just follow what's happening in public, but get, you know, glom onto things and that are newsworthy before they're actually, you know, out there and, and with everybody to, to see. Um, that's how you get stuff that goes behind the scenes, that is revelatory, that can help change the way that, you know, lawmakers work and, and, and the way that societies function. And that's the, the, the good stuff where you feel like you're contributing, right? Um, anyway, that, if, like, if you are somebody who's just really loves covering, there's a lot of people that cover the Pentagon that have been doing it for 25, 30 years, you know? There are people that have been doing the same thing with the White House or with Congress. And then there's people who do one of those beats for like three to five years and say, you know what, it's time for me to switch. I want to stay fresh, right? I like to dive into something new. You don't lose your sources from one area. If you go to a different area of coverage, it's always good to know people in different worlds, especially because the world is an interconnected place. Government is an interconnected thing. D.C. and you know the, the stuff that happens in D.C. versus the things that you might report on in a different part of the world, there's still a reason that they're connected, not necessarily the people talking to each other but things having relevance for either place and and building your network is never irrelevant right it just kind of depends on what how you want to do it do you want to be the type do you want to be the reporter that kind of sticks in their fiefdom or do you want to be the type that kind of reinvents themselves every few years and the industry has room for both as long as you can do the work and you have the energy to keep trying to do the work basically and you mentioned briefly about sourcing and I'm curious, as a Pentagon correspondent, you work in a building filled with confidential sources and that sort of thing. And how do you how do you go about that as a journalist, knowing when to pursue a story and when not to, especially when you're dealing with such like confidential topics? I mean, so huh, sourcing is always an interesting sort of a game, right? You are trying to use the people who both make themselves available as sources, the expert community, the press, uh, the, the people whose you know, specialization is communications and press, um, former people that have been in various offices who are no longer as restricted as they used to be um, when they were holding those offices. But then you're also trying to make sources of people that are not necessarily you know, the most public-facing type, who may know things that they can, even if they can't comment in a quotable fashion on something, can help you learn how things work behind the scenes. And behind the scenes really matters, whether it's, you know, as, as you pointed out, the Pentagon is a place where a lot of stuff happens behind closed doors. Um, so is the White House, so is the State Department, so is the Capitol, so are, so is the intelligence community, I mean, complete, completely, right? So to be able to get, um, to, to build your source network out to the people who are the actual actors behind the scenes, who can let you know, or give you at least, if not the most specific, you know, here's everything in this classified document I read today, which is probably not going to happen, right? Can give you a sense of how things work behind the scenes, of what things are being discussed behind the scenes, so you become a more informed reporter, can ask better questions, can try to figure out what you should be pushing on to try to get um, the story before 
the, the story that either that people don't want you to tell that's still newsworthy or the story before it's plastered all over everything anyway. And that's, you know, why newspapers are exist and professional journalism exists basically, not just to be stenographers of, of what's going on, though there is merit and value to that too, but to get into doing the stuff that we call enterprise, which is, you know, getting um, ahead of where the news cycle is and, and behind the scenes of what's going on to, to give people the real story. Um, you know, you have to make a decision when you're building up sources it's daily judgment calls, right? You know, when is it, when is somebody going to need to be kind of like pulled in and reeled in? How do you get to know people? How many times are you, like, is somebody going to feel better if you take them out for coffee and you don't even talk about the story that you want to talk about, just get to know them, right? Is somebody else going to feel better if you just approach them with straight up questions? People, it's people, right? It's a game of learning and figuring out how people tick. And there's no one size fits all. Just like there's no one size fits all with when you're meeting different students on campus or dealing with different professors or, or what have you, right? You have to, have to figure out what approach works well with what person. And you're building a relationship with those people, but then also you have to remember that as a journalist, you're always the journalist, right? So there's times when, you know, you're going to, you have a relationship with a source and something that becomes a story is going to make that source real darn uncomfortable or real mad at you. And that's just too bad if this, that's where the story and the facts take you and you're going to have to, and, but that's why it's always important to try to build your source network and build your source network and build your source network. Reporters that have large, large um, webs of sources to rely on don't have to worry about being tethered to the information that they get from one person because there's always some other way to create it. This is also, I mean, also just as a fundamental thing, you know, we tend to, when we're working with information, want to have multiple sources, especially if it's not something that somebody is like standing out in public and saying, okay, like if you stood on the Healy lawn and, you know, made a speech, I wouldn't have to get like three people to tell me if you actually said it because it was said in public. And, right, exactly. Yeah. But if it's something that's like, you know, clandestine information or stuff that people don't want to get, don't want getting out, usually you need three, sometimes depending on who the sources are, two is enough, but you need to multiple source to make sure that you're being accurate about things and that you've got, you know, you really tried to trace a trail and you're not being spun by one person who's got an independent agenda or an affiliation agenda or whatever that is. And, and that also requires this sort of, you know, building a wide net. And the only thing that gets you to do that is time, effort, reputation of being, you know, a fair correspondent, trustworthy person. Sometimes people appreciate that if you, if they've heard about you in a positive way, sometimes just dumb luck too. You know, there's, there's no, um, there's no shrugging off the, sometimes look as a reporter you get all kinds of weird random incoming email and phone calls and sometimes you get one out of every like 100 or 200 that actually is is worthwhile so kind of always being on top of things always talking to people always being available it's the exhausting part but it's also the part that gets you to know people who know things and that's what makes stories happen i'm sorry i'm talking a blue streak you want to hear it What has it been like being a Pentagon correspondent reporting on that? Ooh, well, um, <laughs> as you say that, I'm reaching for my phone just to make sure I haven't missed anything because I was just sending a feed on a Ukraine-Russia story since um, we we're talking on, it's Tuesday, right? I can't, knowing what day it is is also important. <laughs> um, yeah, there was just um, announcements made in the last couple hours about uh, the Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine. They're going to have, um, there's 
planned annexation referendums for them. And so I was just reaching out to a bunch of sources right before we started talking about, you know, getting, I, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, and but now it's coming into actually happening. And so you are texting and emailing and calling the people that you know to, to get them to respond. I mean, look, it, it's been, it's a little bit calmer now, but reporting on the whole Russia-Ukraine saga from before the the invasion happened through the invasion to now has been um one of those drinking from the fire hose type situations um you know because before it happened you're trying to to work all of your sources and the intelligence community of like you know why do you when is this going to happen how is it going to happen etc what are you telling the different allies you're trying to see if the military is planning on sending any sort of equipment or if i mean they were sending equipment are they going to scale it up are they going to give various advice are they giving military intelligence to ukrainians to help them decide where to be on guard what's just the assessment from the united states i mean we have our eyes in many places in the world and we talk to a lot of different people in the world too we have a pretty good sense and that was definitely true in the run-up to this this war of you know what the likelihood of things happening are what where where attacks are more likely to happen what the capacity is for responses and that is a not daily that's like an every few hoursly churn when things something is a moving target of a story um at the same time you're trying to work any sources you have anywhere in government about what sorts of aid packages we're pu- pulling together you know are we going to send um th- at the beginning it was like okay fine we're sending javelins and then it's like wait we heard that they might be sending HIMARS and gimlers and other sorts of much more advanced weapon systems and like that's a story too and then you try to get reports because there's you know there's you make connections with Ukrainians on the ground, with Americans who went to go fight with Ukrainians on the ground. Then you have stories about, well, the, what people say from the front lines does not match what the government's saying. And so it's constantly trying to get um, both the official story and the unofficial story that might challenge the official story uh, out there. And so you're working on the enterprise stories at the same time you're doing like breaking news alerts. And and that's what gives you an adrenaline rush as a journalist, honestly. You know, it can get exhausting and tiring but it's also like the moments that you're like all right this is why i was trained to do what i do and this is where it matters and that's always um exciting even when it's for sad things that are happening in the world so in the context of that kind of reporting which is why i was thinking about this uh question for a little bit it seems around the russia ukraine scandal there's this kind of narrative being built where it's almost david and goliath but you know david can win because um, <laughs> I, I the articles are always you know ukraine has captured this front they're defending this city it should have been a three-day invasion it's been so long. Um, and I'm thinking about that in the context of journalism, where it's very much the stories coming out of Ukraine and Russia have the potential and very much are shaping policy. Because, you know, if the policy and the people are believing that, you know, Ukraine can win, they just like they're they're winning right now, then, you know, countries are incentivized to send more aid and kind That's of true. make that story more true. And then on the converse end, if the stories coming out where like, you know, Ukraine suffers these casualties, this Eastern European state that's like, you know, just uh, left like a puppet government uh, is, you know, suffering all these casualties, then I imagine the international response would have been very different. So I'm curious, how does it feel as a journalist to be a person who, you know, very much, and it's probably true in all cases, but I think it's exemplified here where the stories you produce and the narratives you choose to tell almost shape, uh, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. I, I fully agree with you. You're absolutely right. And the, 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 the challenge of that is that, um, you know, look, you're, you're not wrong to recognize that there's a lot of reporting out there that has been very boosterish on Ukraine. And, you know, okay, that some of which is based on actual um, 
you know, actual observation, some of which, which is based on the just the undertow of, I think, people being like, go Ukraine, right? Because like, you know, it is fairly black and white that Russia did invade Ukraine. Ukraine is the underdog. They did not do the invasion, right? So like there's there's a good guy and a bad yeah. guy here if you paint it that way, right? But but Ukraine's an ally. There's easier flow of information there. Russia, it's very difficult to get information. They pushed out a lot of the journalists or the journalists left because the laws changed and became very dangerous to be a Western reporter in, in Moscow from, in most cases. And so you've got less information coming from that side and you've got more information coming to this side and that skews things, right? Also, the, 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 the line from the U.S. government, you know, and again, I said part of the, the whole reporting uh, metabolism, right, is, is what's going on inside the government. What is their assessment? And that was very boosterish, or at least they would talk more about how, you know, Ukraine's capabilities and Russia's losses versus Ukraine's losses and Russia's capabilities, even when you saw the map was getting, you know, more and more Russian occupied, right? Mm-hmm. This is the, the, like, as a reporter, the challenge there is, okay, you want to reflect what people are seeing on the ground, right? Even if we're seeing more on the Ukrainian side than the Russian side right now. And you want to reflect what the government's saying. That's important, too. But you also want to take a step back every so often and just be like, does this pass the smell test? Do I gut check this properly, right? And so I... Here's one example, right? So I actually um, was not following the Ukraine-Russia stuff for the month of, most of the month of June because I was on a trip with uh, U.S. Central Command in the Middle East region. It was technically, it wasn't really Middle East. It was partially Middle East, mostly Central Asia. But I was out of, you know, out of the loop for a while because I was on the road. Um, And so I got back three weeks later because I tacked on a week of COVID to the end of it because that's the world we're in right now. It happens, happens, exactly. Um, Anyway, so I got back. I'd been out of the loop for three weeks and I was listening to the briefings that they do they used to do them every day now it's more like every other day right and what the military was saying the pentagon was saying about the situation in ukraine was exactly the same words as i'd been hearing i mean maybe not like transcript exactly the same but there was no change in tone and i'm looking at the map i'm like the map has dramatically changed for the worse you know and so i just went to my colleagues and i was just like look we should be doing a story about how the pentagon is not changing like the pentagon's rhetoric is not matching what we're hearing like i don't know if this is because they're too pollyanna or because just the tendency is to say like we can always win i mean look at the way they talked about afghanistan for weeks and months on end when everything was going to crap right and then it was like a big surprise like oh actually it's not as stable as the government was saying right and so we did a story about how the pentagon was talking through rose-colored glasses basically you know and in a way where it's like you can't say they're wrong necessarily because you can't prove it but there's a lot of evidence that it's not the whole story, right? And so that's a way of kind of, you know, holding up a mirror to being like, are we doing this in a way that is as accurate? And you have to find a way to balance all of that, right? And so that's the opportunity for that is to do more of the sort of, you know, analytical enterprise, extra reporting stuff, where you can just kind of question what is the standard narrative that's coming out. And I mean, look, since then, Ukraine has had gains. Obviously, we've seen them, right? So it's not like they're in terrible shape, right? But but here's another moment that we're at. Is is it going to change the stakes when Russia annexes territory? Is the, everything going to freeze again? Are we going to be asking these questions again? And part of that is being a reporter with a critical eye. Part of that is also just talking to different people. I mean, at the time that at the narrative was that you just talked about being pro-Ukraine, there were a lot of lawmakers in Congress that were saying, we're not acting as if we actually believe Ukraine is going to win. We're not supplying them so that they can actually enable that. What's going on here? And so you can find the tension and the questions being asked, even 
completely without asking the questions, you know, as a reporter, they are being discussed in various circles. You just usually have to widen the aperture beyond, okay, I'm looking at Ukraine, or okay, I'm looking at the Pentagon, or even okay, I'm looking at the Biden administration, right? You broaden that, you'll find Democrats and Republicans in official roles who are saying, well, wait a second, something isn't adding up here for me. And that becomes a way of just kind of like opening a subject and being a little bit more like, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? That I'm thinking about like bio classes where you're like dissecting like an animal. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, kind of getting in the guts of it and figuring out does everything hang together um, the way people are saying that it does. And there's not a perfect solution. And like, you know, like I said before, sometimes when you have easier information coming from some places than other places, there's a natural tendency to have things swing one way. It's a reporter's responsibility to always try to gut check that and and, and, and question that. Um but it's not a perfect science. I think everybody's trying on a daily basis to get it right without doing the artificial both sidesism of like, oh, well, everything's always equal because it's not, right? There's balls and strikes that need to be called. There's winners and losers. And there's right and wrong. But figuring that out is like the daily challenge. And sometimes we succeed more than other days. So, yeah. And I think that this kind of goes in perfectly to the responsibility of foreign correspondents and like what stories are then told and what gets out to the American people. And I was curious, since you have been a foreign correspondent both in Russia and in the Middle East, what what, what was it like to just dive in into a new country and what was the locals' perception of American journalists? Like how was that, Ooh, navigating that? Good one. Yeah, I like these questions. They're great. Um, okay, so I did it a whole lot better the second time when I went to Russia than when I went to the Middle East. When I went to the Middle East, I had just gotten laid off from a job. I was taking what college Arabic I had, which was nowhere near professionally <laughs> sufficient to be op- operating, and I went to the Middle East and tried to see if news organizations would let me write for them, and the AP said okay, right? And so... Um, you know, I, I worked for them. I spent the summer in Gaza. I did various stories in Israel on the West Bank. Um, but I think the better example is when I went to Russia, which I planned for a little bit more and did a little bit, executed a little bit better a few years later. Um, yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's different. In the Middle East, people are, especially in the Israel-Palestine sphere, people are used to Western journalists being around, and, like, they're very aware and follow Western journalism, too, and they're aware that, like, it matters for how the, the, the international community sees them. It's a very known conflict, and yet it's a conflict that, that knows that it's important to be out there, right? Um, and in that way, that it's it's almost, you know, people come in with assumptions, and it's, it's not like a... a it is a puzzle to figure out. There's no question about that. But it's not like it's um, completely, I don't know. I, I, I also should probably say that, like, my dad grew up in Syria. So, like, the whole cultural Middle Eastern thing didn't feel foreign to me when I went there because I couldn't have been growing up with my half of my family, like, having imported that immigrant sort of culture. So so that's that, that it felt very different for me when I went to Russia because that was a situation that I wasn't familiar with. And Russia always, I like to joke that it's like, like a first world country, but with a very feudalistic mindset. Like it's a very modern, but very antiquated country at the same time. Um, Look, going over um, there, it helps to have language. I had more Russian going into Russia than I had Arabic going into the Middle East. 
night and day when you don't have to when you're willing to make a jerk out of yourself and make grammar mistakes for the first few months and let people laugh at you for being bad at their language you build up a thicker skin you build up the ability to not make mistakes anymore after a while and then finally you build the ability to be able to have direct conversations with people when you don't work through a translator it is so much more useful to be able to talk to people and I'll, I'll explain more on that in a second um nobody cares in russia if what okay some people care when i said i worked for the washington post i get like ah americanska pravda american pravda pravda was the the main newspaper of the soviet union meant truth but it wasn't it was just government propaganda and so the washington post they're just like obama tells you what to write when i was there it was still the obama administration right um, and i was just like well you know and and they all know the editorial page of the washington post and i was had to explain the difference between the editorial page and the news side and it would be very stressful the par the pattern through which this would often go with meeting people on the street was you know americanska pravda okay i get the joke no i'm not necessarily and they would be they would then ask um they would ask at that time 2014 and 15 it was the 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 war in ukraine the first war in ukraine um and so <laughs> they would ask questions like do you know how many babies were killed in the donbass and i was just like uh yeah okay sure we can discuss that actually i'm reporting on the war like finding ways to answer that then they would say do you know who won world war ii and the answer to that the only answer to that that's acceptable is the soviet union if you say it's like a team of people they're like you don't know your history so if you say well i know that 27 million people died from the soviet union they're just like you didn't learn that in america and then after that it would be questions about how did you americans listen to jen Psaki, who was on tv every day for the state department reporter <laughs> i know that sounds super random but that was literally like a, a a standard set of questions that i would get from so many people because they would be very like fisticuffs riled up to be like i knew they were never going to read what i wrote right but i also knew that they knew that you know america was kind of the enemy we were we were sanctioning them at that point they were not feeling terrible effects of that but they were feeling some effects of that in the ruble crisis and everything else like that so you walk in as an american reporter anywhere in the world and you're just like i gotta separate myself from the government i gotta just make myself seem as independent as possible and i have to make these people talk to me despite all that stuff right that's part of the challenge of it right so that's the 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 comical side of it the other side of it is that um you know when you're functioning as a foreign correspondent you're writing about issues of extreme geopolitical imports and very lofty stuff in the government right and you're telling the stories through local people you're acting like a local reporter basically if you go into Russia, you're not going to get sit downs with Vladimir Putin and you're not going to go hang out at the Duma all the time and talk to lawmakers because who cares? I mean, OK, it matters. It's important. But that's not going to actually tell you what's going on in a foreign country the same way as going to talk to lay people is. Right. So going to talk to, you know, uh, people who are fleeing an area that was under siege, right? As they're coming out, like trying to go in with them as well. Like, but but talking to people who can't afford um, basic, like, well, serious painkiller drugs who are going through cancer treatments because the, because of what happened with the ruble and because Russia's healthcare system is basically non-existent, even though it exists, you know, in in paper, but it does it doesn't actually like support people who actually need anything and that and they don't have the money to buy anything that's an import right and like you know it, it becomes you you can tell stories of like what people are going through on either side of a conflict or if it's not a conflict right like and that makes the issues that are up here that feel really disconnected from potentially the regular lay readers life in the united states 
if you read a story that kind of makes it about a person, some, there's something to connect with, right? Because fundamentally, like these governments are screaming at each other and fighting each other and, and, and all the war games and the economic games, but there are people underneath it at the end and trying to understand how they feel and think is kind of the way that we get readers to understand how the world is working and why things keep happening a certain way. Why do people support the government in Russia that seems like it's so antithetical to what their best interests are? All this stuff, right? And that's kind of what gets you out of bed every morning and makes you work 18 to 20 hours a day sometimes, right? Um, because if you don't go cover that story, it's not going to get covered. Honestly, I felt the same way sometimes in Gaza because there's not, like, it's a privilege as a reporter that you get to go in and out. Aid workers have to wait months to be able to get their credentials approved. People can't go as tourists. With a press card, you can come and go as, as you need to, right? And so there's a responsibility to tell that story, too, because it's such a hidden thing. When I was in Russia, nobody had thought about Russia and the former Soviet Union the way they were thinking about the Middle East and Afghanistan and all these other places since like the fall of the Cold War, or the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? So it was like, oh, this is all new and invigorating and has to be told. Um, I'm sure I'm talking way far afield of what you were asking about, but like that's all kind of part of the, the challenges of it, I guess, and figuring out a new place. Yay, join us. Yes, we need good people to be journalists. It's important that journalism stay strong and have, you know, excited people who are excited and smart and want to learn about the world in it. Yeah. And now we're moving into our last part of the interview. So it's a fly tradition to do a lightning round. Oh, dear. So they're just like really quick answers. answers Let me take a sip of water. So you said that you. were in music and like yeah and so what was your favorite musical um, piece that you've ever performed oh god I was in the marriage of Figaro and I was Susanna which is the female lead and that was the most fun I think I've ever sung so oh my gosh that is I used to do acting when I was younger nice I loved performing yeah it's great uh what was the hardest story you've had to cover um Emotionally hardest story or like functionally hardest to report? Mm. I had to do a bunch of stories um, during the Trump administration about uh, various investigations um, at the Justice Department. And it was it was always tricky to source those ones fully because you'd be talking, you'd definitely be asking about things that people didn't want you to know. And they were like, how do you even know to be asking this stuff? And you'd be like, I can't tell you, you know, but um Things like the, you know, the, the, the reason that, um, oh, this is going to be so arcane. You want a lightning round set of answers, so I won't get into the, the deep details of it. But there were a bunch of things that had to do with the investigations of Trump and the investigations that, like, the various people that were involved in those investigations, the documents that they were relying on, where I was involved in a series of stories that kind of got in deep and changed the understanding that people had of like what they were working with and who was working on things which were not easy because it's just you have to like push and push and push and people don't want to talk don't want to talk don't want to talk takes weeks sometimes months to you know seal those things up um but when you know you're on a good story and you know that you're going to have like the breaking headline of oh that's what that Jim Comey document was or like that's who was what these people who are working on this thing um what they're what they're relationship was that maybe undermined certain things like that it's when you can when you know you have something that is going to surprise everybody and change their view of 
a, a, a live, active, central story, that's always very invigorating to keep you going, even when it takes a long time. That was a non-specific answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> our final question is, what is your favorite meal abroad? Um, what is my favorite meal abroad? Oh, dear. Oh, gosh. Um, huh. A really good falafel sandwich off a street vendor, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, like, the real authentic stuff. Even when they throw in French fries and you're not supposed to be eating them in there. But, like, just, like, the really good, just do every, the, the works. So, yeah. They don't yeah. Do the same way. No, they don't. And I was trying to think of, like, a good Russian food, but the truth is food in Russia is kind of, like, not good. Like, the plov is Ukrainian. The kinkalia is Georgian. Like, the, it's, yeah. So, yeah. Good falafel off a street vendor. Thank you guys so much, and it was really great to talk to you. And um, if you do decide to become a journalist, good luck. I can't wait. I can't wait to work with you. Thanks for listening to Fly on the Wall. You can find us on social media by searching at Fly on the Wall Pod. Inquiries may be sent to our email address, flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to subscribe to Fly on the Wall, a geopolitics podcast, and leave a five-star rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud. The Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, Managing Director of the Pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon. <laughs>